0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on The Morning Run and I'm Philip C., On today's property show, we are in conversation with Christine Lee. She's the Head of Research of Asia-Pacific at Knight Frank. As we discuss with her, China's property market. As we ask the big question, how is China seeking to revive its $2.4 trillion property market? So let's just go through the numbers, right? Annual new home sales reached a record 16.3 trillion yuan, $2.4 trillion last year. But that growth was the slowest pace since 2014. And since then, you know, the past recent months we've seen some relative decline taking place hasn't it so how has the Chinese real estate market performed so far this year
1: yeah, very good questions. I think because of the lockdown in some cities, in the first five months of this year, the Chinese real estate market is actually facing quite a lot of cost pressure and the overall sentiment for various markets actually remain quite weak. And uh, we are seeing um, all the real estate construction indicators showing downward trends. So, for example, if you look at the January to May this year, the Chinese real estate investment was about uh, 4% down in Year on year, and the residential component of it was also down three percent. And then from uh, January to May this year, uh, we are seeing the new construction areas being more affected during this period. Um, it was about uh, 30, 30 sorry, it was about thirty one percent down year on year, and the residential construction area was also down by about 32%. So I, I was saying that um, the sentiment had deteriorated quite fair, uh, a fair bit uh, from a year ago, you know, when COVID was almost non-existent in China. Hmm. Having said that, uh, the Chinese market The overall latent demand is still quite solid. I don't think um, the temporary setback faced by both the developers and the retail buyers will actually derail the entire um, recovery of the housing market.
0: I guess the broader question is, you know, how temporary is temporary? And as you were alluding to, the the decline, the structural challenges that we're seeing now is perhaps interlinked to China's zero COVID policy. Would that be fair? And would it be fair to say that this is going to be a function of how fast China gets out away from its zero COVID policy?
1: Yes, I think definitely this COVID restrictions is putting another dampener on the residential market. So just before this COVID outbreak in March this year, uh, Chinese real estate credit environment and also the regulatory policies have already been easing because property mm. prices have been falling. And the property market in various regions were also deregulated. So if you look at the data, more than uh, 50 cities in China have been implemented this deregulation of the property market. Some of the measures include the reduction of the down payment ratio, the reduction of the loan interest rate, and also the relaxation of their sales restrictions and prices. So some cities uh, even went to the extent, you know, to uh, issue housing subsidies directly to buyers. So we believe that after this pandemic law this lot of the demand will actually be released and the market transaction volume will increase quite rapidly.
0: You know, you were saying just now that the market is very much, sounds very deregulated. It's just not one single Chinese property market. So I was wondering whether you could help our listeners understand the nature and structure of China's property market.
1: Mm, yeah, that's right. Uh, it's not just one big market. In fact, it has uh, a lot of uh, regulations that comes out from the local government as well as the federal government. So uh, every market has different dynamics, especially for tier 1 market versus say, tier 3, markets, 5 market. Uh, the demand structure is also quite different. For tier 1 markets, uh, basically you have also the uh, migrants' uh, uh, demand from uh, various you know, uh, working class. So the rise of the middle class is also supporting this uh, urbanization trend in the tier 1 and tier 2 market. Whereas if you go to tier 3 to tier 5 markets it's uh, mostly the uh, latent demand from the local uh, economy. So those people working in the government uh, in the local government in local private sector of course they, they will be the ones uh, who are um, buying houses to support their demand but you are not going to see a lot of investment demand mm. on those markets because
0: of the purchasing power as well. Sure so can you help us understand then what is the, the demand and situation different between the various cities let's say between the tier one cities and the secondary cities because I'm sure you know there's higher demand in tier one but there's also higher supply right how, how are the demand supply economics working out for tier one cities or the larger cities like Beijing, Shanghai and Guangzhou versus the much much smaller cities then?
1: It, um, traditionally, it has always been built on scales. So basically, you are seeing uh, residential market booming because you know the cities are enlarged, and you, have been, you are having more population going to the tier one cities in particular, your hmm. Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou. And that also led by a lot of these uh, uh, MNCs as well as the Chinese tech giants uh, expanding aggressively in those. Places. So, uh, in, even in the second tier cities, for example, Huang, Gang, uh, Hangzhou, where Alibaba Group is based, you know, it has um, ballooned into almost uh, a first world um, kind of uh, city with, uh, with world class infrastructure. So, those are the cities. Uh, that have benefited from this growth of uh, population and also the urbanization. Um, In terms of the supply and demand dynamics, I think that the problem with some of these uh, cities is there's quite a lot of speculative buildings. Hmm. The developers tend to go in uh, with a mindset that, you know, all the units, Uh, will be actually eventually absorbed by uh, incoming uh, residents who want to live in that part of the city. And uh, for the last 20 years, I think there's no uh, question about, you know, this demand supply imbalance because property prices have never corrected in a big way. So it has always been on an uptrend. Developers' bets are always right. And this is led by the high economic growth and also, you know, the urbanization rate.
0: So it's very interesting you say that speculative element because uh, you know or for bets because a couple of years back the you know Chinese government officials always repeated the phrase right the houses are for living and not for speculation and the government at the time was very much focused on just building housing for living so where are the areas that are very much risky at the moment in
1: terms of the volatility yes in some tier one markets uh, you might see the very high end uh, coming under pressure especially after the lockdown in shanghai which was quite extended uh, to about two months and uh, that might be some net Attrition in terms of, uh, you know, immigrants, uh, in terms of uh, uh, entrepreneurs leaving the place for better or greener pasture. So we think uh, Chinese uh, cities, um, if the zero COVID strategies were to stay for a, a bit longer, that might be uh, some pressure on the higher Tier of the market, and yep. uh, there is also um, a shortage of uh, affordable homes uh, across uh, the Chinese, the Tier One and Two Chinese cities, and this is because uh, most of the, uh, I mean, it's the Asian mindset. Um, they like to buy. Uh, we call it the commodity housing market. So that is your, typically your private housing market, and there. Are, uh, priced at market rate, mm-hmm. and it's really subject to demand-supply dynamics because we know that China is turning a lot of millionaires, uh, ultra net worth individuals, or even billionaires, at record speed for the last 10, 20 years. So it will be difficult, um, you know, to provide um, affordable housing if you just leave it to market. And the local governments have been, uh, uh Basically, trying to uh, play catching up um, by having you know all these uh, restrictions in terms of the pricing, in terms of the infantry, uh, it it has worked. Um, so I would say the in the last in the last couple of years, the the pri- the prices have uh, by and large been stable, um, but it is still unaffordable by income standard uh, in China.
0: So Christine, we talk a lot about residential. Help us understand the supply demand dynamics, perhaps, and differentiate between residential and commercial and industrial. Then, I
1: think for Chinese market, we saw you know uh, very high inventory for residential, so somewhere in the uh, in the range of you know five hundred million square meters across uh, hundred cities in China, but. On um, the supply side for the commercial and industrial market, the proportion of these uh, commercial areas in the construction area, I would say it has actually declined uh, in recent years. So. Uh, Since 2020, you can see the future new supply of uh, office market has continued to decline. And uh, according to statistics, uh, for the whole of last year, the new construction area of office building was only about 52 million square meters. And that's a year-on-year decrease of 21% and that's the lowest level since 2011. And also for the retail properties, you can see that the new construction area in 2021 uh, was only about 129 million square meters, and that's a year-on-year decrease of 28%. So on one hand, you know, this decline is mainly due to the regul- regulations of the real estate market. Uh, but on the other hand, it was also caused by the pandemic, uh, resulting in a slowdown in the commercial real estate development. So, on the demand side, the sales area will continue to decline, and the average pricing of these commercial uh, real estate properties in China has uh, not been really uh, appreciating uh, in recent years.
0: Today, I'm in conversation with Christine Lee, head of research of Asia Pacific and Knight Frank on China's property market. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Christine Lee, Head of Research of Asia-Pacific at Knight Frank on China's property market. Well, you know, Christine, just now you were nicely painting out the current state of affairs of China's property market and it's showing a bit of uh, downward pressure, a bit of pressure as we see China try to grapple with its zero COVID policy. What has the government done to try and stabilise the market?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question because the government has always been uh, trying to maintain the stability and the robustness Mm -hmm. in the property market in China. And uh, in recent months, actually, uh, the government has uh, um, done a series of uh, uh, measures, including the lending push, uh, key rate cuts. Some of the uh, easing of the multiple property uh, purchases, as well as cheap mortgages. So, these are key measures that um, the local and the federal government has taken, and uh, I think it has shown some um, uh, some some result in terms of you know uh, stabilizing the, the price trends. So, in terms of uh, some of the the. Uh, pushes. For example, if you're looking at uh, Hangzhou, uh, that's where Alibaba is uh, based, Uh, the households with three children are now allowed to buy one more residence as compared to before. And in terms of the uh, mortgage rates, I think uh, some of the key uh, mortgage rate cut such as the one on May 20th. Uh, it cut the key interest rate for a long-term loan by a record amount and that's a move that will reduce the mortgage cost and may also help to counter uh, weak loan demand. And also on the 16th of uh, May, we saw the People's Bank of China effectively cutting the minimum interest rate for first-time buyer's new mortgage uh, to as low as four percent Four percent, so hmm. that was down from four point six percent previously, and that will help uh, them to borrow money at a uh, very uh, attractive interest rate.
0: You've given examples about what local and federal government can do. In your assessment, right, where are the what else can local governments do to help address the issue? Because, as you say, the the challenges are quite fragmented. It's not everywhere nationally that's being affected by this, or it's at least at different levels of deterioration or struggle. So, what other policy measures can local governments do? You know, besides just uh, easing the financial conditions? Then I
1: think it boils down to demand and supply, and because of this zero COVID. Strategy, Uh, there is some uncertainty on the demand side. We do not know how much more um, housing stock that is going to be left vacant, especially after they are completed. And uh, we are seeing, you know, construction rates are still very high uh, because basically uh, that's the state of the market. Um, People tend to build and they tend to overcommit in early stages. So in terms of this demand and supply dynamics, I I believe the government still has uh, levers to, to tweak in order to bring the demands back because there's quite a lot of, Restrictions in terms of buying, because previously you know one household can only own one home, so people rush to divorce uh, just to own (laughs) homes, you know. Yeah, so so all these policies can actually be reviewed, and I'm not too worried about uh, Mm -hmm. supporting the housing market because we know that over the next decade. Uh, China is still going to be the key growth engine for the world economy. And the Chinese people are also aware, you know, they they are they are still very positive on their future. It's not like a doomsday scenario where they think that they're going to lose their job, you know, or they're going to be jobless for the extended period of time or the job, you know, unemployment rate is going to be as high as, you know, 20% in some of the European cities. So those are not happening in China and because of that I think the demand should still be uh, pretty resilient
0: So that's right right one thing that's unique about China is that there is demand there is optimism there is going to be growth in very much contrast to the rest of the world and that's where then we shift our conversation from demand to supply and the stability of supply side which then touches on this whole grand issue because Moody had already issued 91 downgrades right for high yield Chinese property developers in the last nine months so this has really scared many property developers so are there any lessons learned from the Evergrande crisis?
1: There are a couple of lessons learned from the crisis. Uh, first, um, the expansion driven by debt has lost its popularity so one lesson for developers and regulators is really that they shouldn't rely heavily on the debt market. Uh, I think the second one is you know the two big fail theory and also a list of uh, systemically important institutions are not only applicable for the financial industry but Is also for other industries such as real estate. And third is, you know, the business model that relies on arbitrage is actually very risky and very dangerous for real estate developers. And I would say uh, maybe the... Fourth reason uh, is that this modern enterprise governance structure is not only required by state-owned enterprises, but also by private enterprises. So uh, prudence is very important. And lastly, I think for financial institutions in future and when they are lending to real estate enterprises, they must uh, strictly follow these policies and regulations because it makes it impossible for real estate uh, companies to touch the three red lines to still obtain financing through
0: compliance channels. So what can we do to avoid another Evergrande? You talk about the lessons learned. Are you seeing the government put in place uh, measures to avoid the next Evergrande or is it stuck in the situation that it has to stabilise demand but it also has to make sure that it can prop up the current uh, unstable suppliers? Yeah, I
1: think in terms of this particular Evergrande crisis is actually under control um, but the thing is uh, because of the outbreak of the Evergrande crisis then other developers are also unable to assess this uh, credit market especially the global credit market yeah. and that has led to you know major crisis in the capital chain for many Chinese uh, real estate developers so in terms of uh, um, how to prevent such uh, an event from happening again, I think the government has already ring fenced uh, the risk. So, in terms of uh, bringing, uh, you know, to to bring the, the financial liabilities down, I think it's uh, it's still controllable. Um, You know, like uh, Evergrande's uh, creditors are actually relatively scattered, so the risk exposure uh, to this single financial institution is not very large actually, and uh, we think that government has also uh, reviewed uh, you know this business model. They they think that you know this debt and also the scale growth model of Chinese real estate enterprises uh, needs to be overhauled to adapt to the current economic development. So uh, financial prudence is really the way to go to ensure this uh, healthy development of the industry in China. And uh, I think uh, overall, this uh, crisis, although it is still growing, uh, we think that it is not going to pose a major um, major impact on the Chinese economy and also the real estate industry as a whole
0: mm. but it got gonna be thinking if demand is robust and the local suppliers are going to try and get the act and their house in order and ship it you know ship it in order. Surely this is a great opportunity for overseas uh, markets like Malaysia to welcome Chinese property developers, right, and investors going forward. I mean, Malaysia, we've had our forest city and those challenges, but do you think those are just aberrations and that in the long term, it is interesting and lucrative to attract Chinese property investors into overseas markets?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, I still believe that the Chinese not just the real estate companies, but any Chinese companies, the next step is really for them to internationalise and real estate developer is uh, no exception. And previously, of course, because of the credit boom, they went to uh, places like Malaysia, they create township projects and uh, because of the tightening of their credit back home, I think that has caused some problems. But that's not going to... um, be real or uh, debt the confidence of these uh, mainland developers to continue to invest uh, overseas. Although in the current climate, it is very, very difficult because, uh, you know, the overseas investment of Chinese developers have decreased very significantly from uh, US $17 billion in 2017 to about $1 billion in 2021. So that is a... Uh, uh, you know, a 90% drop in terms of the investment volume. And that's also uh, putting a lot of pressures on the other um, uh, investments or in in countries, uh, particularly the emerging countries like Malaysia, Philippines, or even in some of the uh, other greater China markets like Taiwan. Uh, they are also facing a lot of uh, uh, pressures because of this uh, credit tightening. But um, over the long run, I think once they have sorted out this uh, um, debt uh, debt issue and sorted out um, their, their business model, how they want to grow overseas, I believe they will continue to uh, look at the world uh, for those uh, developers who continue to invest in overseas market, maybe they can also cut down on just residential uh, land development, but they look at more income generating assets. So their destinations could also include, you know, UK, the United States, Australia, and Canada, for
0: instance. Christine, thank you so much for being on the show. That's all the time we have for today's property show. I've been speaking to Christine Lee. She's the Head of Research of Asia Pacific at Night Frank on China's property market. I'm Philip C. signing off for The Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.